please be aware that this is for professional investors only. Hello and welcome. It's Wednesday, the 2nd of December 2020. Welcome to your Morning Espresso. Now, before we get going, if you're listening live, you always have the option below of the different languages. So just click on the button and you'll see the simultaneous translations that we have available. You can also click on the Q&A button if you'd like to send us questions. Or of course, you can always send emails to nordiafunds at nordia.com. Now, this morning we have another special morning espresso for you. First of all, because we're using some new technology, so I just hope that works out okay. Um, and I'm joined by Dr. Sebastian Nagali. And what we're going to do, we're going to do an extended macroeconomic outlook for 2021. So, good morning, Sebastian. Can you hear me? I can hear you well. Okay, so this morning, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be traveling around the world and we're going to start off in the US and then we're going to go across to China, come back to Europe. And because I'm hosting it today, uh, we're going to finish with a bit about Brexit and about the UK. So that's the plan. Um, but first, let's go to the US. And maybe, Sebastian, you could just uh, give us your outlook in terms of you know, the fiscal side of things in the US now that we're going to have a new administration coming in in January. It's a more than the fiscal outlook. It's a, a big package. On the fiscal side and infrastructure, we're talking about $700 billion, uh, as part of the Build Back a Better America. Uh, but also is uh, joining, again, the World Health Organization. Uh, it's uh, re-engaging with NATO. It's basically re-engaging generally with the West and uh, and reversal of what happened under the Trump administration. The impact uh, on the fiscal side is quite important. But if you imagine uh, what it means to spend $700 billion, at least in theory, uh, it, it means an impact on the old infrastructure, on data centers, uh, on... Uh, uh, decarbonization, for example, and all of these would benefit very strongly. But it's also other packages that would come in and would benefit the middle class and lower income people. And that means a consumption which is more robust. So you can think, for example, consumer staples. You can think of uh, discretionaries also doing well. So an entire series of sectors which would do well in this beautiful world of Joe Biden. The reality is, of course, is that it's much more complex than this because the Senate is held by the Republicans. And that means these 700 billion will be much, much smaller. We're talking about an emergency fiscal package that the Republicans value right now at 600 billion and the Democrats value at 2.2 trillion. Odds are it's gonna go the way uh, of the Republicans, maybe one trillion, and that will be negotiated uh, by the, uh, Janet Yellen, the upcoming Secretary uh, of Treasury. So that all sounds pretty positive once we get out the other side with things bouncing back. And I guess that's also good news for China because you know a lot of consumer goods that are sold in the US uh, are made in China. Now, you know, Trump has been quite an antagonistic towards the Chinese in, in the past. Do you think that will be different with the Democrats? Uh, you know, how do they compare to the Republicans in that respect? 
Well, consumption, which is good in the, in the U.S., is generally good for exports coming out of China. You can think of Walmart importing a lot from China and then reselling, particularly to the consumer, in some cases, which is uh, feeling uh, some of the strain uh, financially or has lost its job. So that generally works uh, pretty well. You can think also of the likes of Gap, for example, who are probably running down their inventories in brick and mortar. Uh, and because of that, that means they'll have to order more because consumption is actually quite decent. But beyond these effects, what you have is probably the West starting to coalesce against China, but not against in a dialectic that is one versus the other, uh, but in the sense of equilibrium starting to reset themselves in a, in a different way than under the Trump administration, but still partly in terms of a conf confrontation between China and the West. I wanted to turn to the um, bond market now because you know people get caught up in the stock market, but forget that the bond market is actually bigger than the stock market. And I think you know, global bonds these days is something around a hundred trillion dollars, uh, whereas the stock market is worth something like ninety trillion. And it's also said that the the fixed income market is smarter than the equity market as well. So maybe you could talk to us a little bit about the yield curve in the U.S. and why that's so important for everybody. Sure, it is the case that the bond market is smarter than uh, the equity market. It also tends to be slightly depressive, uh, but it is uh, a way to to look into the into the future. And the reason they are better than the equity market is because there are fewer variables to look at. They have inflation, expected inflation on one side, monetary policy on the other side, and of course credit risk premiums, which are very small in advanced economies, much larger in some emerging market economies. Having said that, Nigeria, for example, is printing uh, yields into negative territory, which is amazing uh, in emerging markets, so a seismic shift in some places. Now, if we focus on the yield curve, the yield curve is deepening. That is, the 10-year yield is rising against the front end. And why is it rising? It's rising for multiplicity of reasons. One of them is that the economy is doing better, and this is being priced in. Number two is that people are looking at deficits in the United States, about 5% of GDP, and thinking, well, this is for this year, and next year, and next year, and next year. That's not sustainable. If that's not sustainable, I require a certain credit risk premium. That means the back end of the yield curve has to move higher versus the front end. Now, if you place yourself in the shoes of China or Russia, they look at this, and this is the way they'll be looking at the United States, and they will say, okay, I require a steeper curve to invest there, and I require a weaker currency. And this is the good news for emerging market investors is that the dollar is weakening versus emerging market versus the renminbi, which is the currency of China, uh, and it's ca creating carry trades, particularly in Chinese fixed income. And I think you'd prepared a, a graph on this, so maybe we could pull that one. That's it, that's the one. So the, that's showing the 10-year yield, but maybe you can talk to us a bit about this. So what do we have here, if you look, is basically the 10-year yield minus the three months. And what you can see is that over time, the 10-year yield has had a tendency to fall, three months, of course, to fall. And why? Because the central bank has been buying bonds, because expectations regarding growth has been dampened. And, over, and that means basically a move lower. But more recently, we've seen a start of a reversal. And that's not driven by the front end, which is very much fixed. We don't expect until, anything until 2022 or 2022 from the, the Fed. But it's really driven by the back end of the curve, which is steepening. But having said that, Yields are about 0.90% on the 10-year yield. This is nothing, but it is interesting 
it tells you something about the many economic mechanisms, but it overall economically of a moderate impact. Okay, so we've talked about the US. Let's move across to, to China and, you know, this, this bullish view on China, is it, is it just based around, you know, a rebound in the economy uh, in the US or, you know, because structurally, actually, China's slowing down. So, so what forces are at work here? It's a very important point that you just made, which is that uh, the economy is indeed structurally slowing down. That has, it has been happening for years. And there are a multiplicity of reasons for that. The first one is that the population is aging. The second one is it becoming more service-oriented. That means as China or Beijing, Beijing looks like a DC or, or, or New York or something like this, uh, as close as it gets in terms of services, the more inefficient it becomes or less efficient would be the way to, to, feature, to say it. And then there are other reasons, such as uh, the uh, entities which belong to the states are relatively inefficient, so it doesn't help, of course, production uh, in general. And then there are other factors, such as a credit bubble, which, of course, is probably unhelpful. This means that within that structural slowdown, what we have is a cyclical upswing of the economy, which would mean that growth could reach as high as 8% next year, which is very strong, 8%. Compared to other advanced economies, this is, uh, this is very, very, very strong. And so we are quite bullish on a cyclical upswing. And one of the reasons why we're bullish is simply because the labor market, as it tightens steadily, then consumption will pick up. And consumption has been not weak, but not very strong. And uh, it should improve in the next few quarters and support growth, which for now is supported by exports as well as infrastructure. And maybe just to pick up on one thing you, you mentioned in passing there, and that's this cyclical upswing, uh, which is happening within this more structural slowdown. So, and I think you've got a slide here on this as well. Sure. The way to look at the Chinese data is, of course, to, to look at it with uh, questions in your eyes. But some of them are, are talking in a very powerful fashion. For example, fixed asset investments. And what you can see on the chart is that it collapsed and then basically regained almost the same level as it had before. So a very uh, strong story of a shock, but then a strong rebound, which is what you can say about the Chinese economy in general. On the other side, what you can see is uh, traffic uh, in China. And these kind of high-frequency data have been very much uh, looked at by many investors. And the reason they, they do so is because they are more frequent, they are available before the rest. The problem, of course, is that they don't relate so well with economic data. But in a shock, they tell a very powerful and strong story, first of a, uh, of a correction and then followed by a strong rebound. And what you can say now is that traffic in general in China has increased very significantly, is below what you expect. And of course, you can't travel uh, out of China with a plane, uh, but you can travel within China, for, uh, for example. So things are um, much, much better than they used to be. Uh, growth is pretty darn strong. And what we expect is a PBOC, that is the Central Bank of China, to start hiking in the second half of next year, removing some of the liquidity in the system. Okay, so we're seeing this pickup um, in China of economic activity, but also a movement of people within, within China. I'm guessing this is playing out also in terms of the, the currency. So can you tell us a bit about the renminbi and what's going on there? Yeah, if you look on the chart, what you can see basically is that the 10-year yield has been basically picking up. And that is a function of better economic activity and that the renminbi has been appreciating significantly. The question is, why is it appreciating? It's appreciating because the dollar, in part, is getting weaker. 
The second part is that it offers much higher yield in China for a low level of volatility. That is, if you invest in the renminbi, the amount of currency risk you're taking is relatively moderate compared to, say, uh, buying uh, an Australian dollar, euro dollar, or dollar yen, for example. So it's quite appealing for people who optimize their portfolio. Another important element is that growth is just so strong. And then because growth is strong, eventually liquidity has to be removed out of the system. And that offers opportunities not only in the front end of the yield curve in China, but also in the back end for corporates and, and others. Having said that, not everything is a buy. So we've seen, for example, some defaults of some sovereign entities. Uh, and, and of course, that means a significant amount of judgment and balance sheet analysis is uh, necessary if you're going to go down into the corporate uh, spectrum. If we focus now on the equity side, what you can see is that equities in China, by some metrics, are expensive versus the past. But, and this is very important, they're cheap relative to their peers in Europe and in the United States. Another element is that what we know is when the dollar weakens, which is what you can see in the chart behind me, it means that emerging markets have a tendency to outperform. So is it a causal relationship? The answer is absolutely no. It is uh, something that happens both at the same time. Why? Because when there is a decent amount of growth in, the, in China, but also in the United States, and when the Chinese central banks intervenes to some extent, uh, it reinforces low rates in China, low rates in the United States, and creates a virtuous circle. And the problem from the Chinese is the yields that they're getting in the United States and Europe are so low that it forces them to allow some form of currency appreciation, which is very, very, very controlled. So it's a good story from a fixed income point of view, a good story from a currency point of view, but also an appealing story from an equity point of view. Okay, so we've been to the US, uh, we've been to China. Let's move a bit closer to home uh, here in Europe. And I was going to start by asking you, you know, what do you think the announcement's going to be on the 10th of December when the ECB uh, meets the next time? That's a very good question. What we expect from the ECB and consensus expect, let's be very precise about this, is a 500 billion in additional spending. And that would bring the so-called PEP spending from end of June till the end of December. That is the ones which are related to this COVID crisis. Why is it important? Because such 500 billion can be allocated easily to Italy, Greece, Spain, Portugal. And to some extent right now, it is absolutely not needed because the yields in these countries are incredibly uh, low. What could be the surprise? The surprise could be that we don't get 500 billion in the so-called PEP program, but that part of it is uh, part of the standard program, and that would be to please the hogs. So that would not be welcomed by the markets. Having said that, yields in the periphery are incredibly low. Um, and so the ECB has essentially won the war. All it's doing is basically extending uh, that war uh, for about six months. Could it do other things? What most people expect is the, what is called the funding operation or TLTR, or long-term funding operation, uh, would have a sweetener so that banks could fund themselves even cheaper than before. One could talk about 1.10 or maybe 1.15 minus. Uh, percent in terms of funding, which is incredibly appealing uh, for a bank to fund itself in different uh, type of operation. Could it do other things? Covered bond programs, asset-backed securities, taking off things from the balance sheet of the banks to make them lend? Uh, the answer is possible, but it's not very likely. Uh, these programs have more or less uh, died a good death uh, and 
but you never know. It, it could actually be part of the deal since they've said everything uh, is open to the review in terms of what will happen on the 10th of December. We'll also have the economic projections into 2023. A, a lot of information basically, but the, the size of the package and the sweetener, especially on the TLTRO is what the market will be focused on. So as we're recording this, you know, much of Europe is, is into their second lockdown. Uh, and we wait to see what happens for, for Christmas. But maybe you could just talk to us a little bit about, you know, the impact that this second lockdown is having um, in terms of economic activity and in terms of Europe as a manufacturing center. Well, what, what we know is, for example, looking at this uh, high frequency data as well as uh, E4 manufacturing is that um, the first shock was very hard and was very brutal, but was very uh, short-lived in the case of, uh, of Germany, and particularly because there was a lot of demand coming out of, uh, out of China, exports were going better, and so there was a, a, a natural stabilization of the manufacturing economy in Germany. And what we can say is, well, what does the high-frequency data tell us? And the high-frequency data is interesting and also misleading. And what you can see on this blue line is that it's been steadily increasing over time. And the reason behind it is that this, these are basically all the tr trucking going through Germany. And why is it doing well? Not because Germany is doing better. Of course, they are doing better. But because Eastern Europe, Polish drivers, Hungarians ones, all are traveling across Europe, and particularly and then traveling through Germany. And this is being captured in the data. And what you can see is the brutal shock that comes in with the latest, the, the, the COVID crisis, and then a, a rebound. And what we have, not in this data, but in other data, is a sense of a slowdown in economic activity because obviously there are huge lockdowns from Belgium to, to many other countries, which is obviously so not helpful. The lockdowns are not as stringent as they used to be in most countries, but they are in some countries. And so the expected impact is it should be a much smaller one than the previous shock. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because when you're driving through through Germany on the, on the autobahns there, if you look above you, you can see you know, sets of cameras and they're filming the trucks as, as they go past. So I'm guessing that that data is coming from those cameras. They are, they're being picked up like quite nicely. And I have a German family and we, we see all these truckers coming from uh, Czech, the Czech Republic and all of them. And 10 years ago, they would come with really old trucks and it didn't look very nice. And then every year it would become a nicer and a nicer truck until they all look brand new. And, and you could see the volume pick up every single year as it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's basically the rise of Eastern Europe as a, an economic powerhouse. It's incidentally where we produce a lot of our cars. Well, I can assure you a lot of those trucks do actually make it to the UK because I see them driving around the M25 with all sorts of different number plates on them. Um, but that's perhaps a, a segue for us to start talking about uh, the UK and about Brexit, because uh, I've seen on your next slide, you, you've you titled it uh, Gambler's Corner. So why don't you tell us about Gambler's Corner? It's a Gambler's Corner, but the British are very, very phlegmatic about it, ultimately, because if you look at uh, these slides, what you can see is a uh, euro sterling volatility. So it doesn't sound like it's an important thing, but what it tells you is, what is the amount of risk people are afraid of in the currency? And the answer is not very much. It's basically standing at the, almost at the bottom. So m the market, at least, it believes that uh, we will get a deal. Um, now, to phrase the, the problem within its context, you can see in the other slide, is that the 
shock from COVID-19 and Brexit, both of them have hit you, the UK consumer very brutally. So it means that once these risks are resolved, particularly the Brexit risk, but also the COVID-19 crisis, you should see a significant rebound in activity in the United Kingdom as consumer confidence returns. I should go the right way. Having said that, they're talking about a, a fiscal contraction, which is deeply unhelpful, but this is a situation uh, for the United Kingdom at this point in time. Why a gambler's corner is because some people decide that they can break the mold and break the mold to refashion things. And when things become unstable and out of kilt, then there is a greater chance that it moves in their directions. The problem from a UK point of view is Europeans are very much used to that kind of trading or, or negotiation tactic. And so it's not getting us anywhere. We spent about eight months trying to argue on roughly the same things to arrive right now at three topics on which there are disagreements. Uh, fisheries is the primary one. A, a level playing field for competition is the second one. And of course, if there is a, a conflict, how do you resolve that conflict and to arrive at some form of resolutions? And we're still stuck a few weeks before the end without any type of solution. So Sebastian, before we go to the key takeaway slide, just one last question. Based on everything you've been telling us this morning, you know, what would be your picks for the main asset classes that you know, our, our listeners should be looking at uh, in 2021? What we're focused on is one, ESG, which is a, a megatrend, which we expect will continue. Number two is infrastructure. Like there's EU packages, US packages, but there's a decarbonization also in China, for example. And number three are, for example, flexible solutions, which offer a variety of uh, different possibilities. And of course, a rebound centric on China spreading to Asia Pacific. Okay, so um, it's time to come to the key takeaways. So first of all, uh, US curve, we expect it con to continue uh, steepening. And that dollar weakness that's linked with that will be good news for emerging market equities. The, we expect the tensions with China to simmer down in 2021 with the new administration. And of course, we expect then the Chinese equities, uh, the, the boom that we're seeing there to spread out uh, into the rest of Asia Pacific. So expect that too in 2021. Finally, the ECB, uh, we expect that fiscal package, you know, the agreement on that will probably get pushed into Q1 next year, um, but that's going to happen. And probably around the same sort of time, we should see some sort of uh, resolution with regard to Brexit. There's nothing to say that we can't push this out further into, into next year. Great. So that's it more or less for this week. Before we go, though, I just wanted to draw your attention to a few solutions that we have for you for 2021. First of all, we have our ESG stars. Now, we have both equity and fixed income and a range of global and regional solutions in that range. Secondly, we have our Chinese equity solution. Now, that is run by a company called Manulife based out of Hong Kong. And again, that could be an interesting one for next year. Next one on the list is our global listed infrastructure strategy. That's run by CBRE Clarion. And again, that's a big global theme that we're seeing right now. Finally, in terms of flexible solutions, 
From a multi-asset team based up in Copenhagen, we have our flexible fixed income strategy and also our newly launched uh, conservative fixed income strategy. Both of those uh, could also be interesting. That's it for this week. Next week, on December the 9th, I will be joined by Thomas Sorensen, and he will be talking about uh, a new fund that we have in the range, our Global Social Empowerment Strategy. So again, please do join us for that. In the meantime, don't forget to visit nordia.lu, where you will find our Stay Alert website, and on there you'll have all of the previous uh, interviews that we've done, um, as well as podcasts and Q&As. Well, that's it for this week. I'll see you next Wednesday.